chapter 13 this morning. So if you guys want to take out your Bibles, we're going to pick back up in Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to begin today in verse 44. And we are, Lord willing, going to finish the 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And where we find ourselves is, uh, for the third week now, we're in the midst of this parabolic discourse. And this is the uh, third of Jesus' teachings that are recorded in the book of Matthew. We call them discourses. This one is centered around him teaching the parables. And so the, the parabolic discourse is just precisely that. It's Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he's putting it together in a parable form. So what is a parable, you might ask? Well, now that you've listened to this for a couple weeks, you're becoming Bible scholars. It is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The word parable is simply just two Greek words smushed together. The word para, meaning alongside, and the word bole, meaning to cast. So what's Jesus doing? He's taking a heavenly concept, something that they do not understand, and he's throwing an earthly story alongside it to try to make it simple, to make it easy for them to be able to digest and consume. Now, we see him changing his teaching style, what we saw back in Matthew chapter 4, which was very direct. And in Matthew 4, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went about teaching very directly to people, and the result was um, they hated him for it. <laughs> they have begun to come after him. The pressure is now starting to mount. And so he switches his teaching style from a direct uh, sort of in your face, if you want to call it that, even though I don't think Jesus was that much in your face, but a very direct conversation to now teaching in parables and story form. And the purpose for the parables I put up here for you, and we've talked about this the last couple weeks, uh, it's threefold. One, it's to teach the truth to those who have ears to hear. So to the people that are ready and willing and want to listen to the word, they are going to continue to get truth. And in fact, they probably get truth in a way that's even easier for them to understand than just his straightforward teaching. He gives them very uh, real-life examples. They're an agrarian. They're agricultural. How you like that? I got it out. They're an agricultural society, much like we are here in central Illinois. And so they're going to understand parables that have to do with farming and agriculture. So he's going to teach the truth to those that are willing to listen and really let it absorb. But the second thing that happens with parables is it actually hides truth from people that do not want to hear it. So for the scribes and the Pharisees, these legalistic, hard-hearted people that just want Jesus to stop because he is messing with their system, they are not going to have a clue what he's talking about. These truths are going to be completely hidden from them because they do not have ears to hear. The third thing that the parables do is they fulfill prophecy. And we've talked about this. There are different prophecies that speak directly about Jesus preaching in parables. The Messiah is going to come, and this is how he's going to speak. So Isaiah prophesied about it 700 years before the birth of Christ. Last week, we looked at Psalm 78, the sons of Asaph, a thousand years before Jesus was born. They said that he would come and he would speak mysteries in parable form. And so we see that prophecy is actually fulfilled in the parables themselves. Now, the message that he's uh, going to continue with today that he started last week is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we talked about the kingdom of heaven when we looked in the New Testament. It's different than the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of heaven has uh, actually believers and false believers. It has the real believers and the not real believers there in the kingdom of heaven. And yet when you look at your New Testament and you see mention of the kingdom of God, 
there is no mention of the false believer in the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of heaven is really Jesus saying, this is what the church age is going to look like. So don't be surprised in church if there are both believers that are true and believers that are false. In fact, this actually fulfills prophecy in and of itself. And as he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven being at hand, he's really talking about uh, the heart of the believer in the first portion of the parables, the, the parable of the sower and the seed. That's what the first section is centered around. The second piece that we looked at last week is about the fruit of the believer. Is the, the true believer has fruit, like the wheat, and the false believer, like the tare, does not. And then this week, he's going to focus in on the worth of the believer, the value of the believer. Now, notice with me that each one of these focuses on the believer and how the believer can change, and yet the thing that does not change in the parables is the seed is always the same. The word of God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the consistencies that you see in the parables is the word of God is always there, always present. It's all about how is it received into the hearts and into the minds of the people. So, with that said, let's pick up in verse 44 with the next parable, that of the hidden treasure. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And so we have this very famous parable of the hidden treasure. Now there are two different viewpoints you can look at with the parable of the hidden treasure. I'm going to give both of them to you, uh, and then I'm going to tell you which one I like the best. And because I have the microphone and you do not, you're going to have to listen to the one that I like best. So the first uh, interpretation of this parable is uh, that the field is the world. And that the man that is searching for the treasure is you and I. And that the treasure that's buried in the world is uh, that of salvation. He searches and searches and gives all that he has in order to obtain the treasure and this salvation. And it's a beautiful way uh, that I've heard it taught. I just don't like it as well as the other interpretation. And that is this, that the field is the heart of the believers. It is, in fact, the world. That, that all the world, all the believers in the world make up the field. And that the man is, in fact, Jesus that he has come to give all that he had in order to obtain the treasure. And what is the treasure? It's you. It's me. It's the believer. That's what he came to the world in order to do. For the joy over it, he sells all that he has in order to obtain the treasure. Now, why I believe this is the correct way to look at this scripture. It's for a few reasons. One, uh, throughout the parables, we've talked about the constants in the Bible, that the field is always a picture of the heart condition. And so as we look at the, the field being the whole world, it's the heart conditions of all the people in the world. So we can agree upon that. Uh, secondly, the reason I believe that the man is not us, but instead Jesus, it's because he gave all that he had in order to obtain the treasure. And the reality is, uh, even as we give all that we have, Whatever you can manage to muster and put together, whatever works you can come up with, uh, here's the reality. Uh, Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says that our righteousness compared to him is as filthy 
rags. The very best we can do, the very best we can muster and put together in light of him, it's filthy. And I don't want to get too PG-13 with you on this, but, but I do want to be truthful. What Isaiah is actually communicating in chapter 64, verse 6, when he says filthy rags, he's actually talking about soiled minstrel cloths. Again, not for the nature of being graphic, but I just want you to understand that that's the best we can do on our best day. So by no means, if we lay that down, is that actually worth salvation? Not whatsoever. But what is worth salvation? What is able to buy us back? If you want to go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. And again, we have Bible study notes. If you want to jot these scriptures down, if I go too quickly, uh, for the sake of time, I have to get through the material. But in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed, that word redeemed simply means to purchase back. You were once his, he wants you back. That's why scripture says he's a jealous God. He wants you. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of your fathers. There is no thing you can produce, you can't work hard enough, you can't do enough or make enough money to be able to buy what he is willing to give you. But with the precious blood of Christ, in verse 19, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The only thing that's worth enough to purchase you back is the precious blood of Jesus. He's it. That's why when we look at this uh, parable, he has to be the man. He's the only one able to actually give enough to be able to buy you and I back. But here's the beautiful part about this is what he actually gains is a bride. The bride is the church. That's what he considers a hidden treasure. It's all of you gathered together, assembling all the churches all over that get together, the true believers. This is what he has to gain. And why does he do this? Well, what does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Notice what John wrote. He so loved the world. He didn't give himself just simply for the believers only, but for the entire world. What we read here in this scripture is for the joy over this, he sells all that he has to buy not just the treasure. He doesn't just go cherry pick out the treasures one at a time. He buys the whole stinking field. He gives it all for the whole world. And so then in verse 17 of John 3, that we don't memorize quite so quickly as we do verse 17, it's that so in doing so the world wouldn't be condemned, but that through him the world might be saved. The offer is there for everyone because his hope is that all would be saved, that all would come to know him. And before we get to feeling a little bit bad about that and the weight of everything that we've done, here's how he views it. For the joy over it, in verse 44. For the joy that he has done this. He doesn't do this out of compulsion. He doesn't do it because he feels pressured. He does this through joy. For you and I, our issues are 
we feel too ashamed to accept it oftentimes. I'm not trying to put that on you. I'll speak only to me right now. We feel unworthy, like maybe I, I don't deserve to have this, and yet that's not at all what the Scriptures say. And Satan uses this against us over and over and over again to tell us we're not valuable, we're not a treasure, and so we don't feel it. We get up in the morning and we stumble around and it just doesn't feel right. And yet the writer to the Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, this is highlighter worthy if you're a highlighter person. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. What is that joy? That's you. It doesn't matter what you think about you. That's what he thinks about you. It's right there. He despised the shame. He didn't like the shame any more than we do. And yet, because he was overjoyed to be able to give this to us, he viewed us as such valuable treasures, he gave it all for you and I. Continuing on to the next parable with that same theme in mind, and what you'll find in these parables is Jesus will hit on a similar theme to try to drive it home to the crowd. He says in verse 45, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so here we see that the merchant is again a picture of Jesus. And he's going about looking for beautiful pearls, these uh, gems that were out there in the ancient world. And, and in this time when Jesus is speaking these parables, it they were considered some of the most valuable of all the jewels were these pearls. They were so rare to be able to find them. And, and notice with me, as he goes about looking for beautiful pearls in verse 46, and when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. It doesn't say when he found many pearls, when he found numerous ones, but when he found one. This whole experience, it's wonderful that we gather in church. I want to encourage you to gather together in fellowship with the brethren. Do this right here. You're going to be encouraged and built up and you have people come alongside you. And yet if it stops here and you do not have a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship, you're missing it. This was never supposed to be about religion and rules and organization. It was always supposed to be about a relationship. This is one-on-one. -on -one. For the one pearl, he gave everything to purchase it. So if it was nothing more than you and I, that's it, just me by myself, what he's saying here is I gave it all for you. If it was just you, I gave it all for you. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, the writer there puts it this way. When we consider this salvation, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? How shall we escape given this great salvation? Given what we've learned and gone through and listened to, how could you possibly escape that? That's his point. He's given all this for you, and all he's asking for in return is just belief. 
just simple belief. Now, for many of us, you hear that, what I'm telling you, and you do not feel like a treasure. You do not feel like a gem. You don't feel precious. Most of us are just slinking around trying to get in here today, holding on by a thread. Probably all your Jesus got sucked out of you on the way to church in the car. That's why my wife and I drive separate, all right? I'm just telling you. That's what happens so often, right? Like you, ha- you set off with these great intentions, and then just minutes into the day, it's, that's what takes place. And so we walk in, and we do not feel like pearls or like treasures. And so I want to turn with you to the left to the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, the last prophet in the Old Testament, when you turn to the left, it's your next book past Matthew. Uh, and as you do that, that took you 400 years to get there. So they're about 400 years apart. In verse 17, this is the Lord speaking to his children. He says in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. What's he speaking about? Church, right? Those who feared the Lord, those who, who feared him and understood, they spoke together. They got together and spoke, and the Lord listened and heard them, so a book of remembrance was written before him. And for those who feared the Lord and who meditate on his name. He's talking about assembling, getting together, meditating on the name of the Lord. But then check out verse 17. The Lord says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. That's precisely how the Lord feels about you. It doesn't matter if you feel this way, you feel this way. Our emotions tend to take us up and down on a roller coaster. But you are not the sum of your emotions. You're not. It might feel like that some days, but what he calls you precisely and directly is his prized possession, his jewels. So the question that comes about when we consider all this, it's, all right, what then do I make of my past? What do I make of all these, uh, these things that have happened in my life? And if you've uh, been around church any length of time, especially if you invite someone to church, what's one of the first things they'll say? It's, well, I'd come there, but the walls would probably cave in. I mean, <laughs> you got to look out. Make sure it's on a good foundation. Here's the reality. If the walls were going to cave in, it would have happened at 6 o'clock this morning when the guy that opened the door walked in. The walls are never going to cave in. He views you and I as a jewel. And yet the shame of our past, our mistakes, our failings, continue to lump upon us in, in its bondage, its shackles. It holds us down, and we're convinced that there's no way the Lord can ever make good on any of that. Like all that mess back there, he, he couldn't possibly, yeah, I know he's God, God of the universe and all that, but there's no way he could forgive all of that mess that I created for myself. And so if I turn to the left just a little bit further, I want to take you to the book of Joel, the minor prophet in Joel chapter 2. When we consider our past and all the things that we have lived through and we have done, this is the Lord speaking again to his children. He says in verse 25 of Joel 2, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, 
the consuming locust and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent to you. And then here in verse 26, and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame. What he says about you as precious jewels, as pearls, as hidden treasure, is that all those things that make up your past, all the stuff that you don't really want to deal with or when you do deal with it, it hurts so badly, you just want to crawl in a hole and be done. What he says, what my God says, is he's going to restore those things to you. Those years you feel like you can't get back, he is assuring us you will get those back. He is assuring you that even those messes that we have made, sure we made them. But that does not define us. That does not say and dictate exactly who we are. What he says is that my children will never be put to shame. And I will rebuild all those years. And so as I've uh, had the wonderful opportunity these last five years to walk with Jesus, I will tell you that I've seen him rebuild years upon years upon years that the locust consumed. So much so that I can't even remember it half the time. And what holds us down is this shame that he is so ready and willing to take away. Now continuing on in Matthew chapter 13. In verse 47 is where we'll pick back up. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. And so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just and cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth." And so he tells the parable of the dragnet. Now the dragnet is, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. So remember I said the kingdom of heaven is a picture of the church. And so here's the church as a dragnet, and it's dragging in fish out of the sea of all different kinds. And so he's going back to the parable of the wheat and the tares and talking about both the true believer and the false believer dragged into this church scene. And yet his promise is at the end of the age he's going to deal with them. But up until that point in time, unfortunately, what we often want to buy and believe is that church can be some sort of Christian utopia. And while I would like to believe that as well, that, that church can be Christian Disneyland and utopia all the time, uh, the reality is it's not biblical. <laughs> it's not actually in the Bible at all. The problem with Christian utopia is, well, it's full of people doesn't work. The only way utopia will ever happen, the only way the balance will ever really be brought about, the only way that good will ever finally rule and reign is when Jesus puts his feet on the Mount of Olives and does just that. And what he will do is he will establish his millennial kingdom. Now that concept might not be familiar to you, but at the end of the tribulation period, he is going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives the mountain will split in half and a river will flow from the throne of God there in Jerusalem that Jesus will sit on and the Dead Sea will have life again. It's going to be beautiful. And he's going to rule and reign for a thousand years in perfect peace. Now where will we as believers be? We get to rule and reign with him. That's pretty awesome. 
That's the kings and priests part that we get to actually live out. Israel will get all the promises that they were given in the Old Testament. They'll actually see those things take place. For a thousand years, that's how he's going to operate. And then at the end of that millennial kingdom, the people that are still there, not everyone will die in the tribulation period like we might think, they will get yet another opportunity to make a decision. One more time, they'll get to make a choice after a thousand years of perfection. And you know what happens? Some of them will still choose the evil one. After all that, after all the perfection that could be out there, after Jesus ruling and reigning, some will still choose to go the opposite way. That's precisely what Jesus is talking about. At the end of the age, the angels will come forth and separate the wicked from the just. And those that are deemed wicked because of their own decision, understand that when it comes to Jesus and his ruling and reigning and his final judgment, that no one ever accidentally ended up in hell. It did not happen. It will not happen. He's too good. He's too just. He gives too many opportunities for people to decide. And so here at the end of the age, he will uh, finally rule and reign. And then at the end of this thousand-year period, Satan will be cast away forever, once and for all. And then what happens? Go to the end of Revelation, and you'll see a new heaven and a new earth created. Why? Because both heaven and earth have been touched by sin. Both have been affected by this disease. And so he will create all brand new for us to live in for all of eternity. It's a beautiful thing. And so this is the parable of the dragnet that Jesus is sharing with them. And then in verse 51, he says to them, Have you understood all these things? And they say to him, Yes, Lord. Now keep in mind, Jesus goes through this teaching that we've taken three weeks now to go through in probably about 10 or 12 minutes. And then he asks them, Have you understood all these things? And they go, Oh, yes, Lord, we've understood. Boy, I've nodded my head a lot in church like that too. Oh, yes, we got it. And I think back to uh, the Old Testament, and here's Moses. He's there at the Mount uh, Sinai. He's just been given the commandments of God, and there's lightnings and thunderings and smoke, and he, Moses comes down and gives them the law, and the people respond and say, we will do all that you've said. We'll do it all. We understand. We're all yours. And then they promptly were not. <laughs> I mean, they didn't even hardly get off the mountain before they failed miserably and I think about how we are in our Christian life and isn't that it like we leave on a Sunday and I mean we are all in yay Jesus here I go all that you've commanded and then what happens Monday happens oh stinking Monday like I was doing so good I was so full the spirit is so willing but the flesh is weak he has grace even for that by the way in verse 52, he shares the final parable in this section. He, and then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, his treasure, things new and old. And so we get introduced to a new character, this time the scribe. And in this spot, the scribe could just be described as a teacher. One of the most famous scribes we see in the Old Testament uh, is a guy named Ezra. 
Now, Ezra uh, actually came from uh, Babylon, or the Medo-Persian Empire to be exact. And what had happened is that the nation of Israel, because of their sin, because of their uh, complete idolatry, God allowed them to be taken away in 586 B.C. into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. I just like to say it like that. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes them away into Babylon, and they're told by Jeremiah the prophet that they would be there for 70 years until the time was complete. And that time was actually because they didn't have enough faith to give God his Sabbath years. Remember I've told you before that every seventh year they were supposed to take a year off. For 490 years they did not believe God would take care of them, so they did not take a year off. And so God said, well, if you won't give the land rest, I'll give it rest for you. And so he puts them in captivity for 70 years. Now, by the time the 70 years was complete, they'd gotten pretty comfortable. They began to like it in Babylon. I mean, they're living in, in the most metropolitan area in the entire world. There's commerce. They had businesses set up. And yet God said, at the end of the 70 years, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go back. I'm going to give you Cyrus, the king. He actually prophesies in uh, the book of Isaiah about Cyrus 140 years before Cyrus was born. Amazing prophecy. So what happens 140 years later? Here's a guy named Cyrus, the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire. They show him the book of Isaiah. says, here, you're going to send us back. He's like, what in the world? If that's what God says, I'm going to send you back. So Cyrus gives them an opportunity to go back to the land that they were taken out of, and there are probably somewhere around a million Jews living in Babylon at this point in time. 50,000 go back. 50,000 had enough faith to go back and retake the land of promise. And so they head back to the land of promise, led by a guy named Zerubbabel, and they get back there, and things start to quickly go downhill. They, they believe, and yet uh, they struggle. Why? Because they're enemies all around them. They're picking on them. They, they're struggling to get the walls of their city rebuilt, struggling to get the temple rebuilt. And so Ezra gets a sent out uh, by the Jews there in Babylon. They sent him there to be an encouragement to talk to them, to, to coach them up a little bit, to preach to them. And so he shows up there in the book of Ezra to do just that. And in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, we see that he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. That's important because how did he encourage them? It wasn't with a win-one for the Gipper speech. He went to the word of God. Ezra went and just simply spoke to them the word of God. He went right back to their of Pentateuch, the, the law of Moses. And that's what he used to encourage them, to lead them, to teach them, to ground them back in the word. This is what God promised he would do in this land. And wouldn't you know it? Up comes the temple, led by a guy named Nehemiah. The walls of the city get rebuilt. And so all that to say that the teacher in the story that Jesus is talking about, uh, he has a, a job to do. And that is in the kingdom of heaven to teach the word of God to the people. He's supposed to teach to those around him or her, as it were. And what's he supposed to teach and unveil? Truths, both new and old. Both out of the new covenant and the old covenant. In other words, the whole counsel of God was to be taught. So if someone asks you, why do we go through the Bible verse by verse? Why do we go to books like Malachi and Joel to pull scriptures from and back to Exodus? It's to teach the whole counsel of God. It takes the whole Bible 
to be a whole Christian. That's what we need. This is the foundation. There is nothing else but this. Week after week, when we go through this, by the way, here's the beautiful part. Um, You can know exactly what I'm going to talk about next week. Just read ahead. It's not hard. Just just go forward a little bit. And here's the difficult part about this. Um, We go verse by verse through the Bible. There are times where I wish we did not go verse by verse through the Bible. There are some weeks where it feels like it's too much to bear when it hits so close to home that it almost feels painful. So if you're ever in a moment where you feel like uh, maybe the message is directed at you, I can assure you uh, the message was actually directed at me. (laughs) That's who I was thinking about. wasn't thinking about you at all. I'd like to tell you I'm way more spiritual than this, but I'm not. And yet here's the beautiful part about it, that, that as we grow and as we go through the Scripture, it does exactly what God said it's going to do. It ministers to our soul. It speaks to us right where we're at. So you don't ever have to worry, is the preacher preaching to me today? No. He's just teaching the next section of Scripture. That's the Holy Spirit that's actually communicating to you right now, speaking to your heart right now. Now what we're encouraged to do as we go and as we grow, it's to actually mature. What the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5 is that we are to grow up. We aren't to continue to be babes in Christ. We're actually to mature. When we were babes, we were given milk. So for many of you, this might be the first time you've gone through scriptures like this. This is milk. This is fantastic for you. You need this to grow. But as you grow, years down the road, milk shouldn't be on the diet. It's cute when a little baby wants a bottle. It's not nearly as cute when you're 14 and you want a bottle. Something feels like it's missing, right? That the meat of the word is what you should feast upon. And as we mature, what we're encouraged to do is then become teachers of the word. Now before you panic, that doesn't mean everybody's calling is to sit up here on the swivel stool and teach the word of God to a room full of people. It does mean to the people that are around you, you're to teach the word of God to those people. What's your first ministry? As a householder, it's in your household. That's your first ministry obligation. How do you know you're called to be a minister to them? Well, they were given to you, weren't they? I mean, they're living in your house. It's not hard to figure out. They're there for you to teach the word of God and speak it into their life, both truths new and old. And then as you go, perhaps there's other circles he puts you in. Maybe it looks like your workplace. If you're not going to be Jesus in your place of work, who is? And so you get the opportunity to teach. Does it mean to smack him over the head with this thing? Absolutely not. you got to live it first. The best way to teach is to actually live it out. The word is caught, not taught, most of the time. And so as you go, those are the people that you get the opportunity to interact with. Now, if you do feel a calling to be a teacher, praise the Lord. Let's talk. Because what I was encouraged to do is go to the children's church and go to the nursing home. If you feel like you're called, this is the place to start. And that's precisely where I got to start was in the beautiful Farmington Manor in Farmington, Missouri. Uh, teaching to a whole group there at the residence. 
And, and they gave us the most uh, glorious time to teach the Bible to them. And that was Sunday afternoons, after lunch, and after they got their medicine. Well, you talk about a crew that was excited to see me. Wowie. And if you think you all can be put to sleep in church, you are amateurs compared to these folks. Like they were just out. I would say they got slayed in the spirit. A couple, a couple different times we had to shake them. Like, are they all right? Yeah. But what usually got them was a good, praise the Lord. And then Brother Charles would fall asleep every week. He'd go, oh, praise the Lord, brother. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's Jesus. All right, he's alive. There we go. We'll keep going. You get an opportunity to teach the word, though. And I kid about that, but those people loved to hear about Jesus. They loved it. And, and what was even better is they were so gracious, they didn't even care what I taught. I mean, they really didn't. It was just about hearing about their heavenly Father. And so as we mature, we are called to be teachers. And as we teach, those put around us, whether they're in our family or our workplace or beyond, the only way to continue as a teacher is to feed yourself, too. You have to daily feed upon the Word. Sunday mornings is not enough. It's not enough to keep you fed. It's not enough to keep your physical body fed. You're not going to show up here and eat once a week and feel like you can last all week long. Why would you think your spiritual body can withstand just feeding once a week? It has to be daily feasting upon the Word of God. Now then in verse 53, as we wrap, out the chap, wrap up the chapter, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, and so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is, it not, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And so in verse 57, they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so as we wrap up this chapter, a few things to observe. We'll start with that of the family of Jesus. Notice with me uh, that he grew up in a real family. He did not grow up in some fairy tale crew that everything was all perfect all the time. He had a real family. And to that end, he also had real half-brothers and sisters. So this sort of deflates the idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Her and Joseph had other children. We have James and Judas and Simon that are listed out here just to name a few. James and Jude, we even have their books recorded for us in the New Testament. And so he grew up in a real family, which means that people saw him grow up. To the people there in Nazareth, his hometown, he was Joseph's son, this kid, this carpenter's boy. Now here I think about going back to my hometown, and it's amazing when I get back there. Even at 41, I'm still called by some people that Ashley kid, right? You ever get that? Like, you're still just that kid. I'm like, and I, I feel like I'm a grown man, but maybe not. I do act like a kid sometimes, so I get it. But this is no doubt how they looked at and saw Jesus. 
He grew up in this normal family. Who is this boy? Secondly, notice he grew up very normally. There was nothing supernatural about his upbringing. In fact, there's no recorded miracles of Jesus until he was baptized. So there are no miracles of baby Jesus or, or little boy Jesus healing things. It doesn't occur in Scripture until we see him baptized in the Holy Spirit. By the way, the same power that you and I have access to is what he had access to in order to perform all of these great things. So he grew up normally, and, and to also go to Isaiah 53, verse 2, you can jot this down, but what it says there is he had no form or comeliness. There was no form or comeliness about him. What does that mean? He looked like every other Jewish little boy from Nazareth. He didn't look any different from them. He wasn't the Brad Pitt of the Jews, right? He, he looked like a regular Jewish boy. This is why he was so hard to pick out in a crowd. This is the reason Judas had to betray him because they couldn't figure out which one of these Jewish guys is Jesus. If he looked like all the paintings, he would be obvious to pick out because he'd be the only white guy there, right? He was a brown guy. That's the reality of it. And he wasn't super handsome. And he wasn't 6'5 with a great physique. He looked like everybody else. He grew up very normally. And thirdly, he grew up very modestly. If you think about this, the God of the entire universe sends his son to a family, a lower middle class family. They didn't even have enough money to have the proper sacrifice when they brought Jesus in as a baby. That's the reason they offered two turtle doves. That's the offering of a peasant family. So when we get all worked up about providing for our kids, and right now I'm going to speak to me, not to you, so you can tune this out. When we get all fired up about giving everything to our kids and making sure they don't have any possible need in their life, that's not what God did for his son. Not at all. He had struggles. He had things he had to work through. He grew up in a very modest, lower middle class family the son of a carpenter. And so for all these people there in Nazareth, they, they saw Jesus. They watched him grow up. They were around him more than anyone else. This boy who, while he didn't perform any great miracles, was without sin. And yet, as much as they were around Jesus, look with me how they reacted to him. There in verse 57, they were offended at him. They were offended to this man who came from nothing could speak to them with such power and such authority. You see, the danger zone for us as a church, um, it's not actually persecution. The reality is if we were persecuted more, the church would actually grow. You can look at it in Scripture over and over again. The more the church is persecuted and come up against, the more the gospel goes forth. The thing that actually is most dangerous for us is familiarity. It breeds contempt. It breeds apathy. That's precisely what happened for these people that lived in this village of Nazareth. They had been around him so much that they ignored him. They looked past him. And when I think about how much light I've been given in my life and how much light I turned away from and how many things I just flatly ignored... It's terrifying to consider. But that's precisely what's happened for these men 
and these women. And yet, all this being said, notice with me what he finishes up here in verse 58 with. Now he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. The reason Jesus didn't perform more miracles and didn't do more awesome and amazing things there in his hometown was not because he was any less God in the flesh. He still very much was. It was because of their unbelief. This is the very unbelief that the writer to the Hebrews talks about when he, uh, there in Hebrews chapter 4, when he talks about the children of Israel. They're being brought up to the promised land by Moses. And there he sends out 12 spies. And the spies go into the land, and what do they see? They see giants. It's terrifying. The land is beautiful, for sure. It's a land of milk and honey, yes. But it is also terrifying. And so they come back with a report, and 10 of them say, listen, uh, this is too much for us. We can't possibly do this thing. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, this is nothing for our God. In fact, we feel sorry for those giants. <laughs> it's going to be a bad day for them. But the nation believed the ten. And so because of unbelief, they could not enter the rest. Hebrews chapter 4, for the sake of time, I'll just go to verse 3. For we who have believed do enter the rest. That's what God called the promised land, the rest. But as he has said, and this is speaking for those who did not believe, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A lack of belief for an unbeliever means this, there is no rest. You cannot make enough, you cannot do enough, you cannot be good enough. There is no rest. For the believer who still struggles with unbelief, the reality is there is no joy. There is no joy. It's one of the most heartbreaking things to see is to see a Christian who believes just enough to barely make it into heaven but not enough to believe that he can still perform the same miracles today that he did 2,000 years ago. Because because of that, there is no joy in their life. I think even it's even sadder than an unbeliever at times. A couple spots to go to before we close. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. Paul writing to the church there in Rome says this, for scripture says that whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. This is the prize for the believer. It's no more shame. I shared with you in the opening that to me this is the thing that has shackled us as people. It's chained us as a church, it's chained us as a country, it's chained us as a community, it's shame, it's guilt. It's feeling like we are not worthy of this sacrifice. But what Paul says here in verse 11 is whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The issue for us is one of belief. Because we do not believe, we do not have these shackles removed. One last place to go in scriptures 
speaking of this is in Mark chapter 9. And as I go that direction in Mark chapter 9, this particular passage in verse 23 is where I'll pick up. But what's happened here is Jesus has just come off a spiritual high. I mean, he's come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And in this spot, Peter, James, and John have got to see the transfigured Christ, him in all his glory. Can you imagine what they got to witness? I mean, they were on spiritual cloud nine on this earth. And so Jesus is now coming down off this spiritual high, and don't you know what always happens is uh, problems, right? Mo problems happen. And so this man approaches Jesus, and what's happened in his family is that his son has been demon-possessed, and this demon, this evil spirit in his boy, for years upon years, has thrown his son into the fire to try to kill him, thrown him into the water to try to drown him. And what this man feels, because this is Jewish culture at this time, is shame. Because what they believed is, if you have something like this going on in your family, it's because you as a parent have done something wrong. Some sin in your past has caused your son to suffer like this. And so because of shame and guilt and regret, they have struggled with this as a family. Year after year after year. In fact, Jesus says to him, in verse 21, he says, how long has this happened? And he said to him, the man replied to Jesus from childhood. And in verse 22, he says, and often he has thrown, he has thrown him, speaking of the demon, both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The man had just enough to be able to seek Jesus out and say, if you have compassion at all, help us. And in verse 22, Jesus said to him, in verse 23, excuse me, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Going right back to this issue of belief. All things are possible. He's still the same God in the flesh. The only difference here, the only thing that activates it is your belief. Can he do it? Can he remove my shame and my guilt and my regret, and all the issues I've had in my past. Can he do it? Can he heal in this spot right here? In verse 23, that's what Jesus says. In verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. And then he ends by saying this, help my unbelief. I think so often that's the spot we're in. Where we believe just enough to come to him. We believe just enough. And by the way, just enough is all he needs. He doesn't need any more than a mustard seed. He doesn't need any more than just a little sliver, a little crack, a little bit of hope. That's all he needs. And listen to this man's prayer. I want to encourage you today as you leave to pray this. When you're struggling with unbelief, when you're struggling with the, will, with the weight of the shame and the guilt and the pain and it feels like more than you can bear and all you can muster up is just enough to say, Lord, I believe. Now help my unbelief. Because the same God that can heal, the same God that can repair, is the same God that can help with unbelief if you just ask him to. And so Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, and we worship you.
Lord, some days that's all we can get out of our mouth. Lord, some days all we can do is mouth the words and pray that our heart catches up. Father, some days the unbelief feels like it's overtaken the belief. And yet for this man, the very next thing you did was heal his son with just a spoken word. You took all that unbelief and all that shame and all that regret and all that pain and you, Lord, you restored the years the locusts had consumed, the swarming locusts and the chewing locusts, all the things that seemed to take away years of his life and you restored it. Father, thank you for being willing to restore that to our lives even today, even as we sit here, even as we deal with all the things that seem to weigh us down. Thank you, Father, for taking just a little sliver of belief and being willing to overcome our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you please stand as we sing our closing song? I search the world and it couldn't fill me man's empty praise and treasures the fade are never enough and you came along put me back together desire is now satisfied here in your love oh there's nothing better than you there's nothing better than you there's nothing nothing is better than you I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. Because the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again oh there's nothing better than you there's nothing better than you there's nothing nothing is better than you Turn morning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. 
And the church says, amen. Thank you guys so much. Matt, Addie, thank you guys. You were awesome today. How was that? It was awesome, wasn't it? If you don't know what it's like to have the graves turned into gardens or the beauty turned into ashes, stop for a few minutes up here this morning. Let's talk about it. If you're here for the uh, uh, church camp meeting, uh, stick around. For a little bit, oh, there is some dessert down.